do what you love and do it relentlessly. Do it better than other people because you work so hard. When other people, if you sacrifice in ways that most people don't get to sacrifice, you get to enjoy benefits most people don't get to enjoy. I live by that. Welcome to the Future Podcast, the show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. This week's episode is a rebroadcast of one of our best and early episodes from the show, episode number 49 to be exact, with educator and creative strategist Douglas Davis. It's since been re-edited, remixed, and is certainly worth a re-listen. Enjoy. My next guest is a heavyweight. And the way I found out about my next guest is a little unusual. I'm on Amazon and I buy a lot of books. And I guess Amazon has figured something out about me because up pops this book. And it's called Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. I don't ever do this, but I bought the book sight unseen. I didn't read review or anything. And why, why would I do that? Because the title spoke to me. Creative Strategy. This is what I believe in. And... He's calling it the business of design, which you guys know, we talk about the business of design and the design of business. So I've been very fortunate to actually meet my next guest in person when we're both speaking in Toronto at the Design Thinkers Convention. Well, without further ado, Douglas Davis, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. And I I feel like I was just as fortunate to meet you as well. I remember one of my former students like five years ago. Uh, pinged me one day. Uh, I stay in contact with all of them. Uh, but she pinged me one day. She was like, hey, professor, uh, do you know this guy named Christo? He's talking about your book. And uh, at that time, as you as you mentioned, we had, we didn't even know each other. So she sent me a link and I'm like, Wait, wow, this is uh, <laughs> this is pretty cool. So good to meet you too. That That's very reaffirming to me that the pieces of content that we create can actually, uh, through just one or two degrees of separation, reach back to the people that I'm talking about and trying to celebrate and share their knowledge. Oh, yeah. Now, for a lot of our guests who may not have heard of who you are or have read this book, I'd like to take a moment and talk about just kind of the person behind this and talk about your background, what it was like, where did you grow up, what was family life like, and how did you get into this place that you are today? Wow. So I grew up in South Carolina. And, uh, wow, really, really small town. Uh, I am Southern, so if you hear me mispronounce something, don't judge me. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I grew up in South Carolina, a very small town called Lexington, South Carolina. And despite it being so small, they had a wonderful, wonderful art program, K through 12. And so uh, I was quite bored in school, no effort, um, And a lot of that, I think, turned into behavioral problems. So I would be in class, class clown, not listening to the teacher. And then teacher would ask, what did I just say? And I would (laughs) spit everything right back to her. Oh, wow. So I I was listening, but Mm -hmm. I was bored. And because I could listen with no effort, 
and spit it all back. I got B's with literally no effort, no mm. study, no time outside of the required time. I remember, um, just, <laughs> I'm dating myself, but I remember being in class one one year. I think this was in high school by this time. might have been middle school, but we were sagging our pants back then. I remember that. Yeah, and uh, don't do that anymore. But uh, I was sagging my pants at that time. The teacher was like, pull your pants up. And so I pulled them all the way down to my ankles. So needless to say, I got sent to the, I guess it was in-school suspension. But the great thing about that, the silver lining there was that I, I just was able to draw all day. And the way I got into just art was the state fair. So some of my older cousins took me to the fair and uh, they threw some darts at balloons and they won a mirror. This particular mirror had Garfield on it. So that night I got home and sat on the floor, got some paper, and I just drew Garfield. And my mom later asked me, did you trace that? And I told her no. And from there, she scraped the money together to get those art instruction schools that uh, by mail uh, art school. Do you remember Draw This Pirate, Draw This Turtle? Yeah, like Draw Again. To Me the Turtle or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So oh, my God. You would draw it and you would send it in to, I think it was in Chicago. And they, they had art teachers that would critique it for you through the mm -hmm. mail. And mm -hmm. back um, and it was just amazing to get the encouragement there. My behavior changed um, because I had an outlet at that point. And I, I wrote Jim Davis, um, and he wrote me back. And so all of those things uh, were able to give me the outlet that I needed as a very bored little kid who, who didn't have an outlet. And then from there, uh, I remember this is the last part of, of this story in terms of how I got into design. I remember uh, it was 11th grade summer, and I said to myself, you know, if I don't go to college – I want that to be because I chose not to and not because I couldn't. So on my own, I went to summer school. I took a additional math. I continued to complete the foreign language because I, I chose French, but I hated it. And then I switched to Spanish. So I was able to finish all that. Took the SAT three times, Chris, mm. three times, just to make sure I could get the best score that I could. And I had graduated high school by this point. No plans to go to college, and and this is this is weird, but uh, I I did not have one conversation about college with my high school guidance counselor, not one. So I had graduated, no plans, and I was doing some volunteer work with the Urban League in Columbia, which is the capital, about 15 minutes away from my small town, and I stumbled onto a conversation where the vice president of recruitment admissions was speaking to some other volunteers about Hampton University. And I literally came in on the middle of the conversation and he taught and by that time he was talking about the college requirements. And lo and behold, I had the college requirements because that year before on my own, I just decided that if I don't go to school, I want to say that it was a choice and not because I didn't have the option. And so I went home that night, told my mom I'm going to apply to Virginia. I'm going to apply to Hampton University. I was accepted. My mom drives me six hours um, to Hampton University. She walks around the campus 
one time to see what she's paying for. And she waved at me on the way out. <laughs> she came back four years later when I graduated. Uh, it, what was very interesting is that I went there to major in fashion merchandising. And when I got there, they told me that the fashion merchandising program had been phased out. So I immediately thought to myself, well, my fashion interest is only a symptom of, of the greater art interest. And so I'll choose this graphic design thing because I'd never done that. And that's how I literally stumbled into graphic design. It's the story of the professor who never intended to go to college. That is hilarious. Okay, I was doing a little research here. So this is called the Draw Me School, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like a mail order kit and then you get yeah. art instruction critique. And yeah. what, whatever it, happened to that? They gave you critique and what, what happened? Yeah, so you got... You, you were critiqued so literally like I guess the instructor had a red red line pencil mm -hmm. and they would literally draw on the top of your work to show you proportion, to show you shading, really a lot of the elements and the principles of design, line, shape, form, space, color, value, texture, all those things. But really, I guess I can say at that time, being that young, it was just the encouragement mm. of being able to look through some books because they had lessons that were in books and based on the lessons at the end you had homework and you could then at that point you would then mail in the homework for the grades and i mean this these were extensive notes uh they really took time to to you know give you a, a comprehensive critique and just just knowing that someone was paying attention you know it was pretty amazing so my mom, I have to say this other thing, and I mean, there might be people listening who have little kids or, or who uh, really had to struggle to get into graphic design because I, I have to give a shout out to my mom because my mom never let me hear anyone say, don't be an artist. You're going to be broke. You know, what are you thinking? You should be, uh, you know, a doctor. You should be a lawyer. You know, the things that uh, people understand and they assume make a lot of money, but they don't really think whether that's what you want to do or not, or whether it's something you're interested in. It just becomes their suggestion on your life. And so I have to, you know, really give props to my mom. She protected me. I never heard from anyone. No one ever said, don't do that, or you're going to be broke. So I never had the pressure that a lot of people have to work through in fighting their parents in order to pursue what they love. And so I, I definitely want to you know, give a shout out to my mom and, and to any of the listeners who might have had to fight through uh, what is really loving advice that is trying to protect you, but ends up potentially being limiting and something that you have to go against the people who nurture and love you and who are trying to help, but who are really not clear on what all the possibilities are um, in art and design. And, and again, I don't know how my mom found this school and, and and you know it's an even bigger guess as to how she was able to pay for it back then it's like a thousand dollars it's like wow a lot of money back then i love that story and i can so relate to it and i think there's some commonality between your affection for your mom and how she was able to nurture shape and protect you from the naysayers and i think that's the beautiful thing about moms uh, and, and it yeah. seems like it's more moms than dads unfortunately yeah is that they can recognize that spark that passion that you have and, and kind of clear the table for you so that you can pursue that. Yeah. And that, that's an amazing thing that your mom found this draw me thing 
saw that talent in you, that latent thing, and she didn't know what shape or form it was going to take, and yet she spent the money to get you this thing and that encouragement, that support, can do so much for your self confidence. I mean, we're so much. We're, we're kind of young beings, and we're still as as much as we don't want to admit it, we still care about what our parents think. Yeah. Now there are a lot more people probably listening to this that didn't have that. Yeah. They had the exact opposite. So how do you know in your heart when your parents and everybody, society is telling you that it doesn't matter if it's about design. Yeah. It could be about architecture, photography, or maybe you just want to be a mechanic, whatever it is. Absolutely. When all those forces tell you don't do this, how do you know this is the right thing? I mean, after all, you're a teenager at that point. Yeah, well, I think overall, I mean, I look at this now um, as an adult in terms of outlets. I know that I have to have at least three outlets in order to be in balance. And I think it becomes that thing that, you know, you wake up every day and you do it. So, you know, rewinding back a little bit, you know, drawing Garfield, going through this art instruction school stuff, being at my public school where we were drawing, painting, doing rock carvings, uh, ceramic sculpture, portrait bust, the wheel, um, printmaking, etching, you know, we literally were doing everything. These were all outlets for my creativity. They were outlets for my perspective as a kid and my behavior changed. So I don't know how you recognize it, but I know that it was something that I had to do every day. And that turned into inking pen and ink and doing Marvel characters, you know, um, Spider-Man, the Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson stuff oh, back yeah. in the day, you know, Spawn, you know, like, <laughs> I do know. It, you know, like it was just you know, the X-Men drawing Wolverine and and really getting perspective down, really getting proportion down. And so I think at the end of the day, it becomes like, what do you have to do in order to be in balance? You know, what what is it? What is not an option for you? You know, I, I think at that point you can see it in terms of outlets and. I think you have to listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And again, now my outlets that I have to have, my creative outlet is the artistic, I'll call it the artistic outlet, is what I do in my day job. I'm an associate professor at New York City College of Technology in Brooklyn. And I guess I'll take this time to give a shout out to the Art and Design Club at uh, City Tech. Jamar, Derek, Elijah, I see you. I see you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so... (laughs) my artistic outlet is there with them mm-hmm. and really teaching mid level, I guess, intermediate, you know, sophomores, how to conceptually develop something, how to come up with an idea and how to make sure it's on brand on strategy and on message. I love doing that myself as a designer. I love the details, but to zoom out and to really make sure that we're focusing on the artistic part of it, I went to Pratt Institute for my first master's and really they approach everything through aesthetics, like really being able to the craft, I I guess I'll say so that I have to have or else I'm not in balance. Another outlet as a professional is that graduate conversation, you know, the more strategic outlet. Uh, And I get that since met being involved with the branding and integrated communications program at City College, where I teach the nonprofit capstone. I love being in an advanced elevated conversation where there is a client, but it's still within the context of the safety of the ivory tower. So there's still as close as we can bring it to the boardroom, 
because there is a client and there is money. And I have to definitely uh, give a shout out to Nancy Tag, the program director there for creating that because uh, that's unique. Um, but it's still within the context of safety. But I need that elevated conversation. And then lastly, in my own practice, that professional outlet, I need my client service. I have to be able to be involved with clients in order to to make sure that I am not only proving my own ideas about where things are going in terms of design or how I think that they should move forward strategically and what that looks like um, on the the creative side as well as the strategy side, but I need to help them. I need to offer what I do with something that's just innate. I want to give what I have and I hope I do that on all three of those levels, but you have to have those outlets and you have to recognize and pay attention to yourself uh, in order to determine what those outlets are. And I guess the layer over the top of all that, again, is helping people. I love to help my undergraduates. I love to help my graduate students. I love to help my clients and giving. I think all of those things are, are things that each and every person uh, has to figure out for themselves. And you go through a lot of trial and error. But I think it's going to be really important for everyone to determine what they would do for free. You know, like if money wasn't a thing and if it's not really about uh, supporting yourself, what is that thing you would do for free? Because that's the thing you need to be practicing so that somebody will pay you for it. And if you put everything you have into it, the money will come. One last point on that. I I hear a lot of young people, young designers, um, my own team, my own freelancers. I realize that a lot of people start out with the objective to make a lot of money. It's in some ways why the people who love you might suggest that you become a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer because, oh, they, they make a lot of money. And money sh- is, is not an objective. It, it has to be a byproduct of you doing what you love um, because life is too long, Chris. Think about it. To go to work every day and do something you hate but that you've built your life on and that you spent the early years doing. So it's almost as if you're afraid to start over because you feel like you're too old to take the risks that you would have as a kid if you were just you know, introduced to design at the right time so you become something else and you hate it. Life is too long, man. You know? It's very interesting. Yeah. We, we arrive at the same conclusion, but I just say life is too short. Don't die. <laughs> Don't die living somebody else's dream. Right. And and you kind of said to, to the fact, like, you got to learn to listen to your heart. Like, what is it you're passionate about? The things that you would do if nobody were watching and money didn't matter anymore. Yeah. That's a pretty good guide, right? It is. Uh, I, I And I can tell you now 100% that I'm living the life that if I had a billion dollars or if I had $5 in my checking account, I would be doing the exact same things that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the exact same. I'm doing what I love and I'm doing it with people who I appreciate and love. And it's a big gift. So help me fill in the blanks here. So how yep. does a Southern kid who's drawing Garfield on the floor yeah. wind up teaching at these schools and writing a book about the intersection between business and design? What happened? Well, that kid, that kid's grandfather used to listen to a conservative uh, radio show. I'll say it on this show, the Rush Limbaugh show. I used to listen to that. Yeah. 
my my publisher wouldn't let me put his name in and i and that was one of the battles that i had to have over the book so i just said you know conservative radio show but my grandfather used to listen to rush limbaugh every day at 12 and i remember not understanding anything that they were talking about but i do remember that my grandfather would laugh a lot <laughs> he would laugh a whole lot at what old rush was saying but it was one of those things where you knew that granddaddy was going to be at the table eating lunch listening to rush limbaugh at 12 o'clock every day and i remember one day i was old enough to understand what was being said and i was you know again i'm maybe all of six at that point but i remember feeling like wait a minute like why are you listening to this granddaddy and he said i want to know what they think mm. and that really introduced me to the concept of seeking to understand a perspective that's outside of your own and i'll never forget that lesson because it is not only how i decided that i should write a book about all the other perspectives that are involved in the ecosystem of creating things but it was also something that helped me to be curious from that very, very young age, obviously, um, you know, definitely being interested in, in art and design, but not really finding it yet. Um, I think that was my first lesson on, I, we could even call it counterintelligence <laughs> in some ways. It's, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was an amazing lesson, but it was really an introduction into listening. And, and into willingly wanting to hear perspectives that are not like your own and to be curious about what those perspectives are to seek them out. So when I went to Hampton, it was just a great, great environment where I learned to build on some of the lessons that I learned out in the country. My grandfather would say, if you're going to cut the grass, do a good job. You know, my grandma would talk about your name follow like going further than you uh, and going faster going before you so you have to have a good name which means that you need to do a good job the first time you got to work hard and I saw a lot of people earning a living with their backs and I reasoned out that I wasn't the strongest so I want to get paid with my head I remember saying that um, and I and I remember a lot of the racism down in the south not that We've overcome all of that. I think we have made some progress, but um, I did remember thinking that, you know, I don't want to spend my life teaching somebody something that their grandmother should have taught them about people being equal and no one being better than someone else. And so after leaving Hampton, even though I had worked at the Smithsonian at that time, I had a, an internship, um, NASA had a microgravity partnership office with Hampton University that I was interning in all this doing design um, as well as uh, worked at Disney doing their um, business and communicating business was it I guess it was like branding or business and communicating business seminars yeah, it wasn't branding but um I graduated with a resume and yet and some experience from Hampton but I wasn't quite confident enough mm. so I applied to Pratt Institute when a failed group project, uh, I was blamed for the outcome of that group project. Uh, I was the only one graduating. I told the team far in advance, up front, that since I'm graduating, I need all this stuff a month in advance before we're supposed to turn it in. And they gave it to me a week in advance. 
And so when I, at that point, didn't care either and, you know, found out that they were actually working with another person, designer, uh, the teacher, the professor blamed me. He's like, so maybe you should enroll in Pratt Institute. And I thought to myself, wow, it sucks being blamed when you communicate clearly up front and everything that you tried to do in order to make things work out, the other people involved didn't cooperate with. And therefore, you're the reason why this is not working out. This, this was an advertising competition. So I applied. My only school was Pratt Institute. Just like my only school that I applied to was Hampton University. And I got in because I thought to myself, no one's ever going to blame me for things not working out again. And that's how I went to Brooklyn and started at Pratt at 21 years old. I was very, very young and didn't know that everyone else was at least 10 years older than me until we were in class one day. And they were like, well, how old are you? And I was like, well, how old are you? And it was like, <laughs> what? And they were like, what? And uh, so, yeah, I was like the youngest person there at that point. And um, I was studying communication design and just helped me to build on some of the work ethic lessons from, you know, cutting grass in the country, do it right, do, do a good job to going to Hampton University, learning from students of Joseph Albers at the Bauhaus. Lee Brady went to the Yale Graduate School and learned art. His hand would shake, but when he would pick up that pencil and draw, he was... He had the steadiness of a surgeon. Wow. And uh, I remember him teaching me that, you know, when they ask for five, you do 55, you do 105, and you choose the best five. And that taught me to always be grinding. So I was, whether it was the photo lab or whether it was shooting in the studio or drawing, it would be three o'clock in the morning and I was printing my own photos or I was drawing you know with Alanis Morissette jagged little pill playing really loud at you know 3 a.m in the morning in the dark but I was I was working and to really just be in a lab grinding so when I went to Pratt and had teachers like Tony Despina people who uh, helped to really establish what graphic design is in America um, Tony worked with Herb Lubalin, um back in the day and just the stories that they would tell really became the blueprint of my model of what a designer does. A designer solves communication design problems, but he or she also teaches. They share their knowledge. And they were, they were all teaching and working. And that really inspired me to do the same thing. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I got from South Carolina to, to New York and what the affiliation is with myself and different institutions that I used to teach at. Where did you learn the business stuff? So the business stuff, uh, so let's see, I graduate Pratt at 23, but at 22, I was found and hired by Juno Online Services. This is way back. 99, they had that email client where ads would pop up in it, and we were, um, I was hired to help out with this team. Um, they also had a team in India, and at 22, I was working full-time at you know, an internet company. And I was going to school at Pratt full-time at night. So that went really well. Dot-com recession happened. Uh, Right. I think I I lost my job in that about a year after I got it. So when I graduated, the recession hit and I lost my job that I had for a year. So 
what was great about Pratt is that I, it didn't teach me how to get a job. It taught me to prepare for a time when there were no jobs. And so three days later, I was up and running from my house, freelance in my apartment in Brooklyn. And um, for a year and nine months, I just freelanced and worked at The Gap, folding sweaters while applying for every single design job, one o'clock in the morning, calling people, leaving messages. So I would be the first message that they would hear at 9 a.m. when they got in so that when they called me back, you know, and I, and I was on my 15 minute break at The Gap or stocking DVDs somewhere, I could give them a call back. And I did that and freelanced just to survive. I got kicked out of my apartment. I you know, couldn't afford it. I went from being able to afford everything to having two, three roommates. And then they would pay their rent and I would pay that rent to the landlord, but I couldn't pay mine. And so all the recession and all this crazy stuff, uh, I got kicked out of my apartment. And that was probably the lowest point, even though I was still on the top, being that when I got kicked out of my apartment, I had also started as an adjunct professor. And by this time I was 25. Um, and by that time, the economy came back. And so on Friday, I got kicked out of my apartment. And on Monday, I started as an adjunct professor, um, as well as the economy. I guess I could say like the industry came back and I mm-hmm. found another job at Condé Nast, Condé Net at that point. So after really gaining responsibility, positions of responsibility relatively quickly and going through Condé Net Essence, um, I broke into advertising at J. Walter Thompson. Wait, before, was, before we get into yeah. that, I got to ask you this question. Sure. Okay, so you're a highly educated person at this point. You've got an undergraduate and a graduate degree. Yeah. You're going to one of the best schools for design. And then forces outside of your control seemingly conspire to strip all this away from you. So just tell me a little bit more about that state of mind that you were in when you're folding clothes at Gap or stocking DVDs somewhere just to try to make ends meet. Absolutely. Did you start to question yourself? No, actually. um, The best part of being poor, Chris, which I didn't find out about until I had a master's, by the way. Again, my mom... My family, we were unified. We didn't have money, but we had love. And I grew up rich as a result of it. And money, since we didn't have it, was never a solution, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So when we, when I needed something, I had to think how I was going to work or how I was going to use my head to achieve it. Money never came into the equation. So by the time I got to Pratt, I was walking around New York City six out of seven days without a dollar in my pocket. And I went to Pratt Institute. And I'm in Brooklyn, New York. It is very expensive. And at times I had $20, Chris, and I had to think about whether I was going to buy a Metro card so I could get to classes, whether I was going to buy food so I could eat, or whether I was going to buy printouts so that I could show my homework. Wow. Yeah. And, And the crazy thing about it is that my friends had computers, but I didn't have one. So I went through a, a design program at the one of the best schools for design without a computer. And the way I did that was I would stay up all night in the all night labs. But when those were closed, I would work on my friend's computer all night while they were sleeping. When they got up to go to work, I went home to go to sleep. I got. (laughs) Yes, you did get through it, man. There are a lot of parallels between your story and my own. 
Yeah. I got to say for all the, the, the kids who have everything that they could ever want in life. Yeah. I, I didn't have a computer either. And I did the exact same thing. I would stay in the computer lab. It would close. Yep. And then I would wait for my friends who had computers and I would just wait until they fell asleep. I'm like, can I use your computer now? Yep. No, I mean, unfortunately, you get through it. Yeah, you do. Unfortunately <laughs> for me, some of my friends worked all night. So I'm like, shoot, <laughs> I, I got nothing. I got to rush to the computer lab in the morning and try to get my homework done. It was just this horrible feeling. Yeah. This sense of helplessness. It was. It was, it was hard. Yeah. But man, it, it does build some fortitude inside of you, some resilience, doesn't it? It does. Because again, if money's not the answer, then you have a lot of options available to you at all times. And one of the biggest options that you and I both mentioned are your relationships. And so since, again, I grew up poor but didn't know it, had no idea because we were giving food to other people. My grandparents were sharecroppers. So people would come over and go out in, in the fields. And when I say I'm from the country, I'm from the country, Chris. <laughs> so they go out into his garden and they would be able to fill their fridge with whatever they chose to pick mm -hmm. and he was always free with that you know my grandparents we i mean we we're a huge family they had like seven kids and so i didn't know the difference between some friends and family because some of my best friends were my cousins and so the line was really blurry but we were always together and it was always about being unified and it was always about you know pulling what you had together and, and watching out for each other and so there was a lot of integrity. There was a lot of lessons that I learned there, but money was never a solution. So I never doubted myself because it never took money in the first place to do anything because we didn't have any. So I had to figure out, you know, as a, as a country boy in the city, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to work? Am I going to figure out work study? Mm -hmm. And my solution was just to go, go to the financial aid office every day. I made friends at every single one of those financial aid offices so that I could have the access to information. And, and just to really have the heads up as soon as possible when I needed to make up a gap in tuition. Mm -hmm. So it was really just about survival and survival on nothing. And that was what I had grown up doing. I remember being an undergraduate, Chris, and we went on a nine day road trip for spring break. We went from Virginia to South Carolina to Atlanta, back up to Washington, D.C. and back. And I had one dollar when we left campus. And that dollar didn't leave Virginia because I bought a 99 cent Whopper. <laughs> now, you might be wondering, how the heck did you eat every day and all this kind of stuff? It's very simple. I had all the relationships in all the different areas. We stayed with my mom, we stayed with my cousins in Atlanta, and we stayed with my aunt in Washington, D.C. So it was, you know, nine people in three cars, and everyone provided something. I happened to provide room and board. They provided gas and cars and food. And it was, well, actually, it was really easy to have food because I was staying with my relatives the whole time, but I right. just brought Carlos full of people. But my point is that, you know, relationships are a tool that I'm hoping that everybody can hear, uh, everybody listening, that it's really important to, you know, call your mom when you don't need anything, when you don't need $5. Because if you only call your mom when you need $5, then that's a problem because she's a person. She had a good day. She had a bad day. You know, she, she wants to talk to you and share things with you. And, you know, I don't want this to only be about calling your mom, but call your mom. 
but really this should be this is the larger lesson is about cultivating your your relationships and making sure that you're calling your mentors when you don't need anything making sure that you're calling the people who you've connected with who were at that job when you don't need anything or when you see that they have an article out or when you know that they're the art director of some magazine and they, you know they're using some a uh, new typeface, you know, send a ping and say, hey, cool new typeface, awesome cover. You know, I saw your article. Like, cultivate your relationships so that whenever you do need help, it's, you know, someone on the other end wanting to pick up the phone because it's it's a comprehensive and complete relationship. And so I, I didn't question myself whenever all those things that were outside of my control were happening because – I had relationships, but I also had the wit and the fortitude to know that you can think through any problem. That's what we do in our profession. We think through the problem and we have tools that we use to solve that problem. And so all of those things, were it was just a matter of time and um, a lot of prayer and a lot of eat lunch in the park when, you know, I didn't have a job. And yet it was still a lot of work you know, every day and every night applying for every job and also figuring out that I also have to survive. So, yeah, I'm going to work at The Gap. I'm not too good, though I have a master's degree from, you know, this school and an undergraduate degree from that school. I'm a person, you know, I put my pants on one leg at a time. And I think this is a really important thing that, you know, sometimes life will humble you. And really, it's about well, what what is your response to that? Mm hmm. Let me ask you this quick, really quick question. Yeah. Um, sometimes when people have master's degrees, it can be difficult for them to get a job in kind of entry level positions. Did you did you get any of that? No, actually. Um, and this will sort of take us back to the the end of the question that you asked in terms of um, how do I get into the business side. I was always about the work. And so, again, um, when I got my first job in the business, I didn't even apply for it. Someone saw my my portfolio, my work online. They contacted me and they hired me. And so I went from six out of seven days without a dollar in my pocket to more money than I ever had before in my life, like stock options and all these different things. And so really your education after the beginning of the conversation um, really doesn't matter. And I say that not necessarily to say, hey, everybody drop out of school, but more so I say that to say that learning is more important than the letters in the place that you got the letters from, your grades. And so I was all about the learning. I was all about what I was going to do with the information that I learned. So an undergraduate, when I was taught a new concept, I would spend three days doing whatever that concept was the exact way that the teacher or the professor taught me to do it. And after I was done in those three days, I would then spend the next four days wondering what I was going to do with that new tool, that new concept. And I would give myself an assignment. Now, I'm a kid. I'm 17 at that point. I'm an undergraduate. I'm 18. You know, So from 18 to 21, I'm there just doing this stuff pushing it farther so that when it was time to go back to class, I would ask the professor, how, how do you want it? I did it this way, that way. I stood on one foot, you know, I blindfolded myself. I, you know, how do you want it? I have all these different options. So I, I think the focus has to be on the tools. And I 
personally, in my story, I got the tools through going to college because I didn't have the social circles that would allow me to do what Mark Zuckerberg did and drop out. My family didn't have the socioeconomic standing and, you know, therefore the people who also had seed money and who were connected in places that could, you know, do me a favor. And I'm not saying that, you know, people who come from rich backgrounds only get to where they're going through other people or knowing someone, but I am saying that I couldn't do that. So I had to go to school. I had to get a master's, but really I was always focused on the learning. And so it never, it's never hindered me because it's really about the work. And that's kind of how I got into business after about seven or eight years of bouncing around from the best creative uh, agencies, you know, the DDBs, the uh, Deutsch, um, so many places I can't even name anymore, and working on a lot of brands, I realized that I was losing battles. And I was trying to articulate the business or the marketing objectives, but I didn't know how to talk through any of it. So mm -hmm. I, I would fall back on my creative vocabulary. And the other people on the team were winning these arguments that I knew that I was probably right in, but that I, I couldn't articulate. I, I didn't have a vocabulary. I wasn't introduced to those things. So one day I stumbled into a strategy session and that showed me, oh, this is that thing that keeps beating me. So I was like, hey, I need to get out ahead of this. And this is going back to the, the you know, master's degree conversation. I applied to New York University. They had an integrated marketing degree, master's. So I went back and got an, another master's. Now, Chris, this was during a time, this was like 2007. This was during a time when I didn't have to get another degree. I didn't have to get another master's. My career was actually going very well if I wanted to just remain a creative. But I saw that things were changing in those battles. And I saw that there was this whole world of information and there was this whole basis of winning that I didn't know about, was not introduced to, and yet it was the whole reason why we were all in the room. And that's, that's a bit of the limitation of where I think, you know, formal education, I think, has, but, you know, it's changing, but that's why I was able to write the book. But I went back and I learned business because I saw that that was really the language that we should have been talking about to sell creativity because there was a marketing objectives. There was a, there was a target group. There were differentiation strategies that we needed to hit. And so in terms of anyone out there thinking about whether they should or shouldn't get a master's, and I know that you do a lot through the future and through school and, and all those things, uh, Chris, you, you help a lot of people to become familiar with a lot of the things uh, that they need to know to move forward. Really, this is about tools. So wherever you get the tools from, get the tools, whether you're a person who needs to be in a classroom or you need to be in a place where knowledge is, is physically being disseminated because you're great with people. And obviously, whenever you impress your professors, they're their, your, your biggest advocates. I always say that if professors are cheerleaders for their students, then my skirt is the shortest. 
So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, you know, if, if you are a person who learns best like that, then by all means, do it. And it is expensive, and yet it's an investment in yourself. It's the best investment that you can make. But if you're a person who's already gone to school or didn't go to school for design, learn the tools somewhere else. If you, you know, have your undergraduate degree and you're interested in design, you know, pick up a book or subscribe to, you know, what this podcast and, and school or the future, any of these things. I mean, there's so many options out there. I think it's just important to get the tools. Mm-hmm. There's some things that I would say that are really hard to disseminate from a distance, though. If you think about the taste, like the aesthetic taste in California, that's different from the aesthetic taste in Manhattan or in Brooklyn. And so I think it's going to be really important for you, regardless, to find some sort of local uh, physical place to go to make sure that you're tapping into what's going on wherever you're going to to be um, because yes we can do a lot of things online and through the internet nowadays but it's going to be increasingly important that you learn the flavor local flavor because that's the greatest opportunity for you to talk to people in land business or for people to refer you but really overall it's about where are the tools that you need and are you serious enough about learning them Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Douglas. Welcome back to our conversation with Douglas Davis. I get so many questions here to kind of follow up. So I'm trying to listen to what you're saying through the ears of potentially a audience member. Sure. That you're, you've got an undergraduate degree, two master's degree. Yeah. And you're saying like you grew up poor it's kind of hard to fathom like where somebody would begin because the sheer amount of debt that tuition is going to bring yes, is enough absolutely. of a barrier for so many people to like, no, I, I, can't, I can't even dream that. Yeah. Forget about three degrees, just like one degree. Yeah. So can you give us some, some practical advice if I do want to go to school? What what can I do and how much debt am I going to incur? Yeah. Th- those kinds yeah. of things. Well, these are great questions, and I think I'm probably the least – you should probably not listen to anything I'm going to say right now. (laughs) (laughs) Way to sell that. On this this particular point, don't listen. Are you sure? Because you seem like the most qualified person to talk about it. I I say that because of of what I'm going to say now. Again, if money never was like a thing, right? I I applied to these schools, number one, not knowing anything about them other than NYU. I knew that I was basically going to spend my savings and then some. I knew that because I was old enough to know that by then. But if you if you if you think about this story, I had no idea that Hampton was not only a, a very prestigious historically black institution, a very prestigious institution, period, that was private. Had no idea at all. I applied and I got in. Had no idea what Pratt Institute was. I just heard a professor who was blaming me for a team who was irresponsible. But for some reason, I was the one who needed to enroll in Pratt Institute. And that was literally like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. No idea what this place was, Chris. 
or how much it costs. So I, you know, nowadays, I think anyone listening to this podcast, from what I hear, people apply to so many different schools and they have to then figure out, okay, this is my top tier, this is my second tier. This is, you know, if money's an option or if money's not an option, like there's all this sort of analysis on what's possible. I had none of that because money was never a thing. It was just that I need to learn these tools. So I ended up going to the best schools, again, stumbling. I don't know, we, we call it Providence, we could call it, you know, it was meant to be, it could be fate, I'm not sure. So in terms of how to finance it, none of that was on my mind. All of the things that were on my mind was how do I achieve the goal that I'm trying to achieve? And yes, there's a lot of debt. The great thing about it, though, is that because money and making money was not my objective, pursuing my passion was, and I was relentless at it. And as a result, the work was great. And as a result, I got the jobs, some of which I didn't even apply for. And in, after about five years in the field, I, I didn't have to make any more calls because through headhunters, previous people who I had worked with, and just the fact that in New York there's so many opportunities, I would get more calls than I could actually even satisfy. Right. So I was sharing work with other people. But again, I then became able to pay the debt because my focus was never about the money. So I ran up the debt not knowing that that's what I was doing. What I, was, what I thought I was doing was going after the best places to learn from the best people in the best institutions, which is why tuition costs so much. These brands attract a certain type or caliber of professor or professional in our, in our particular field. That caliber of brand that attracts that caliber of professor attracts that caliber of student. And I happen to be one of those students, not because of pedigree or not because of knowledge, but more so because of work ethic. Mm. And so as a result, I had the network, I had the connections, I had the pedigree without even knowing that that's what I was gaining in order to pay the debt. So all that to say, you know, go after what you love relentlessly. And I know that the game is different now in terms of people applying to different schools. But this is why I say don't, you know, maybe my story is not like everyone else's story because I had no knowledge about what I was spending. I had no knowledge about where I was even going to learn this stuff. I just knew that I loved it and I wanted to learn it. And so I worked hard and therefore I did well. And I didn't get a lot of scholarships because I wasn't necessarily a straight A student. I put my grades in my book uh, in the back, but I was serious about it. And, you know, I was so serious about it that at NYU, I wanted to work at NYU. I wanted to teach on the graduate level at NYU in the program that I was in. And so in my capstone class where you have to write a business plan for a business and you have to execute it, I went to that class every day like this, well, every week like this is my job interview. And so I prepared as if this was my job interview. And on graduation day, when I still had my uh, NYU robe on, when we were at um, Yankee Stadium, where we graduated, I was invited by the chairperson to be a part of the faculty. And so I say this over and over again, do what you love. I think there's so much worry nowadays, and, and for good reason. The economy is different. 
you know, people apply to a lot more schools. Schools are becoming increasingly expensive. Um, but at the end of the day, the best investment that you can make is in yourself. You know, as long as you're not being irresponsible and, you know, spending money on rims, if you don't have money for rims or if you don't have your education, you know, you, you do have to prioritize. But I can definitely say that money was never an objective. It was just to do my absolute best. And so as a result, I never thought about what I was spending to go to these schools. And I also never thought about what I was going to make. I just did my absolute best. And as a result, money was a byproduct of that. Okay, so it sounds to me that some of this was ignorance and just blind ambition and just going yes. and not even yes. caring about what the debt was going to be. Not caring. Okay, okay. But how long did it take you? Or are you still working off that mountain of student debt, those loans that you must have had to take out? Yeah, yeah. I'm still working on the debt. Okay. But I am talking to you from Cabo San Lucas. I own my property in New York City, uh, three-bedroom, two-floor um, duplex. My wife doesn't have to work, even though she's going out and auditioning every day. She's in Broadway, so they you never know when they're going to land something. But I, I say all this to say to you that it's, it's a bill that I can pay, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable. Because I, my priority was the work and what I loved. And as a result, the money follows. Perfect. I, I can guarantee you that. That's the part you should listen to. Do what you love and do it relentlessly. Do it, do it better than other people because you work so hard. When other people, if you sacrifice in ways that most people don't get to sacrifice, you get to enjoy benefits most people don't get to enjoy. I live by that. Love it. I've had friends uh, from high school that, pursued professions that they thought were most lucrative and that was growing like aerospace engineering or whatever it is. And their heart wasn't into it. Right. And then those programs get shut down or whatever and they're SOL. Oh yeah. To this day, they're still trying to like make that buck. But both you and I have pursued our own passion. Yeah. And if you really believe in it and you're good at it, the money will come. Oh, it pays off. It does. It'll pay. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Uh, my gosh, I'm trying to be mindful of time here. We, we have a lot more to cover. So I'm going to ask you to kind of give me a shorter story so I can cover sure. more ground. Okay, let's do it. All right. Do How it. much time do you have left right now? I'm on vacation, Chris. So <laughs> when well, you say wanna... it's over, <laughs> when you say it's over, I'm going to go to the beach. All right. So okay. <laughs> All right. The, the book that I'm holding in my hand is dense. Yeah. It's like over 200 pages. Yeah. And you talk about and I'm going to just pull this out a little bit about speaking the same language, having that common ground to talk to the business people, yeah. the strategists, the clients. Yeah. And you go into listing key ideas that you got from your education. So I'm just going to run through it real quick. Yeah. And then you can pick out anything you want to talk about, okay? Sure. So you talk about insight, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, segmentation, differentiation, features versus benefits, and they're very different. The purchase yeah. funnel, marketing allowable, metric, brand ladder, positioning statement, brand activation, scenario analysis, and having a creative strategy framework. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a creative person, and these terms are as foreign as French is for some of you guys, yeah, you got to start doing your homework. You got to learn this stuff. So are there any concepts in there that you just want to pull out? Yeah. 
Um, if you're a beginning designer, so maybe you're at school or maybe you are, you know, maybe one or two years in, I'd have to say that you should focus on insight, the very first one. And I say that because oftentimes, because of the fact that business school doesn't teach how to inspire designers, you're going to get a brief at a kickoff meeting that might be as thick as a novel. And in that brief, there's going to be so much information that's completely irrelevant to you and it's going to sap your creative everything because you not only have to sift through it to then basically throw it away, it's going to then, I guess, leave you in a position of grasping at straws. So if you can understand what an insight is and how to craft one from your own research, which you're going to have to do anyway, since you got something that was useless, you're going to need to know how to do that yourself because you're going to miss the deadline and you're going to basically panic, which is what we end up doing a lot of times when we don't have what we need. So if you're just starting out, the insight is really important for you. If you are mid-level or you're someone who has a team or you are looking to gain more responsibility, I think segmentation and differentiation are really important concepts for you because of the fact that you're going to have to make sure that you as the emissary on behalf of the client are able to connect the brand and the target. So the brand is really concerned about what they're selling, but If you look at product reviews, there's often a gap between what the brand says about itself and between what people say about the brand. And it's going to be your job to make sure that you can do something about that. That's how they're going to gauge whether what your work is is valuable or really they're going to make their determination as to who they choose in terms of the pitch your group or your agency or your firm or someone else's according to who solves that problem. So understanding who you're talking to in terms of segmentation and really drilling down on who the target is, how they think, you know, how old are they, how does that age factor into their purchase decision, and then understanding how that product on the other side, which is where differentiation comes in, um, fits into solving their pain point or addressing whatever issue they're in or whatever their life stage is. So if you're in that mid-level position and you're making recommendations, segmentation and differentiation would be really, really important for you. Um, If you are someone who's a creative director or you're running a group, I think scenario analysis is really important for you because if you can make multiple recommendations based on what a brand is trying to achieve, and the three options that you present to that client, you will be on much more sound strategic footing if your three options address three completely different objectives. And some of those objectives might even be ones that you recommend. Um, I always tell people at talks to question the answers that the clients come to us with. The client is going to come to you with who they think the target is. They're going to come to you with what they believe their brand means in the context of that target. And they're going to come to you with certain given things that are in that novel um, that you're going to have to sift through. And your job is going to be to question those answers and determine whether what they've said and what they've taken as a given uh, is still relevant because there's so many shifts that are in our environment at this point. 
A scenario analysis would allow you to do that in your pitch. So if one of those options is based on competing with the top competitor, then you can gear that option, strategy and execution, to achieving a different position, to moving your client forward. If the second option that you present in your three deals with being better about communicating, articulating some aspect or element of the product that's not so well known, or if you want to change the conversation in around the brand product or service that's going on, then you can make one of those options tailored to that. That's more of a brand sort of thing. And then if another option is, is specific to a product that is sold from that brand, then you can drill down in that space, uh, in that third option. But if you're on that level where you're creating pitches, it's going to be really important that you're not just showing them three different uh, options, one red, one blue, and one purple. You need to show them completely different scenarios in terms of if you do this, if you go with this option, we can be better in terms of competition. If you go with this option, we can position our product in a, in a stronger place in order to to get uh, repeat business or if you go with this option we can uh, launch that product or we can you know maybe dethrone whoever is the top competitor or if you are the top competitor maybe we can continue to strengthen our position at the top hmm. well that was a lot to absorb yeah there's a lot that is this is why yeah. it's a dense conversation and, it all and, depends yeah right yeah now i've i've heard you say this before that the work that you do needs to be beautiful and effective. Yeah. And for a lot of designers, this is not stuff we learn in school. We we right. learn to make things like this craftsmanship and just make it as beautiful as you can. So for people who just want to stay in that I want to make it beautiful, is there a future for them? Is that industry or that are those opportunities growing or are they shrinking? What's your take on that? Good question and really good way to set it up. Overall, I'm going to say that if you rewind back, Chris, and, I, and I'll ask you uh, since we're talking, if you let's let's go back 10 years, think about your business, think about your clients, think about the work that you were doing 10 years ago. Think about what you were charging for that. And now 10 years later, if you were doing only that work, if you were charging only that amount, could you sustain yourself? Has your client ask or the things that your clients are coming to you for changed so much so that if you only charge what you were charging 10 years ago, would you be leaving so much money on the table and while doing more stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny that you say 10 years ago because those are the good years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So the answer is, is no, we could not sustain ourselves because the market is becoming bigger for creative services right. while the budgets are shrinking. They're moving right. in the opposite directions on both ends, right? Exactly. There are more people graduating every single day from schools, not only from the United States, but from all over the world. And their programs are catching up really fast. Yep. So don't kid yourself that you think designers from Africa or Asia or some parts of or Eastern Spain Europe are not Brazil. as good. Yeah, yes, you're right. Yeah, they're really right. good. The, the internet makes learning this stuff really fast. So then... The clients now have more options, and so they say, and they have more pieces of media to make. Right. So, so their budgets want more for less. They do, and that's a reality. Yeah. So that's that's where 
that's how I want to answer that question. Nothing stays the same. And I started out just being about the aesthetic part of things. But the reality is that I only could I could only go so far in the in the amount of time that I it took me to tell you my story. Things were changing. So now I would have to say things are changing even faster. And as you mentioned, there are people all over the world who you're competing with. I think the only thing that would help designers who want to stay in the creative lane is that what I was mentioning earlier, there's a local flavor that someone from Eastern Europe may or may not be able to address. Now, the flip side of that is that if there's somebody, um, if there's a business down the street from you who you want as a client, but they don't want to look local, then that's a problem because they would then go for that Eastern European person uh, or their work. But again, there's something to be said for relationships. There's something to be said from sitting uh, about sitting across the table from someone. There's something to be said for, for trust. And so where the internet, you know, is every day allowing us to connect with people who we're competing with uh, all over the world, there's still something to be said for trust. So if you want to stay in that aesthetic lane, I would have to tell you that you should probably partner with someone who would handle the business part because at the end of the day, you're going to still be able to charge for strategy and execution. Even if you decide you want to be an expert just in the aesthetic part of things, it's irresponsible to disregard the strategic reason that we're in the room. It's a business. You know, if you want to be about art, then you need to pick up canvases and paint. And that's important. That feeds the creativity that designers bring to their job. But, you know, designers are in the room to achieve a business objective or a marketing objective. And that's just true. And even though it wasn't introduced to us that way, I had to find that out through losing. Mm-hmm. And now how would you respond to somebody who's going to because some of the people I talk to, their heels are dug in deep. Yeah, they really are. And they say, well, uh, what about that expression that uh, good design is good business? And yeah, that's all I should be able to do. Right. Yeah. Well, the I I always acknowledge not only through the talks, but also in the book is that um, strategy is not for every designer. You're you know, every single designer should not think that they have to learn strategy or else they're not going to be able to compete at all. I think they have to partner with someone who is going to be about the business portions of things that you can't run away from that part. But I don't believe that every single designer is going to want to or even understand that it would help them to approach their job as a creative from a strategist perspective. That's the way I've done it. Mm-hmm. That has added new areas for me to build for. That's added new ability for me to defend my creative and aesthetic decisions through that's added new ability for me to speak the language in the room that's added new ways for me to address what's keeping the ceo or the brand manager up at night and therefore protect the creativity that i'd like to uh, launch so in some ways if you don't learn business because you want to learn it, but if you only learn it to sell more creative work or to defend your creative decisions whenever you have a client relationship, 
it's worth it. Mm, okay. I, I, I appreciate that perspective, but I'm going to just go, I'm going to go one up on you on this one and say you should learn some aspect of the language of business and strategy and marketing because it allows you to at least to be conversant with a strategist. Exactly. And none of this hurts you, so why not add it to your repertoire? It is important because you kind of have to ask yourself in, in a, another way of, of saying what you just said, Douglas, is that are you gaining ground? Yeah. Or are you losing ground right now? You know, and if you're That's not... That's the basis of my question right? to you in the beginning. Right. Yeah, absolutely. If you're losing ground, stop staying in the same spot and just move over to the side. Really important. Absolutely. Okay, Dr. Davis, I want to <laughs> ask you to write your prescription for designers what they need to do, creative people, what they need to do in the next five to 10 years to grab a piece of this pie. Because I believe there's been no better time to be alive and be a creative person because there's just unlimited opportunity out there. And But the needs are getting more complex and the problems yes. are, are kind of in, in tow becoming also more complex to solve. So the same tools that you learned just five years ago, the same ideas, the same philosophy is not going to be effective moving forward. Absolutely, absolutely. So sir, look into your crystal ball and tell me, what do we got to do? So this is this is what we have to do. We have to change the way we learn. We have to change the way we listen. And and really, this is not so different from what we've always had to do. Think about it, Chris. Again, let's rewind. Let's go back 15 years. Let's go back 10 years. It doesn't matter. We had to keep learning what new typefaces were out. We had to keep learning which new tools we were going to use. We had to brush up on how good we were at Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects. Like none of this is foreign to a designer. If you're really honest, we've always had to learn additional things because of the fact that our business moves at the speed of technology. It moves at the speed of new product launches. It moves at the speed of new platforms. It moves at the speed of, you know, consumer, I, I guess, even technology. Because if there are these new devices that businesses are going to cultivate their relationships with their, their target, their consumer, then we designers are the people who provide the spoonful of sugar that make business and marketing objectives palatable to the public. They can't do it without us. So change the way you listen. Change the way you learn. And I guess expand the things that you have been brushing up on in order to be a better designer. Expand that to include paying attention to what's going on in business. Because if you just decide to start reading the Wall Street Journal, for instance, if you decide to start reading about certain categories of where your clients are, then you'll start to see where things are going to go and you can anticipate those changes. But really, at the end of the day, even though there's so many different new platforms and ways to communicate, Snapchat, and there's all these different things, you have to continue to learn how to leverage those things on behalf of your client. So even if you don't like to use Snapchat, you need to understand Snapchat so you can help your clients. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. So you have to, you have to change the way you learn. You have to change the way you listen 
because again, even if you just want to play in the in the in the artistic space, if you just want to be a designer focused on the details, the color, the typeface, the format, that that's fine. But you still have to be aware of what your client who's going to pay you is concerned about. You still have to be able to look at and recognize what's going on in the category that your client um, is participating in, is competing in. You still have to be able to, to look at the, uh, the competitive set that your client is competing in and make some decisions about what you believe is going to go on in that space and how you think and how you would recommend that they capitalize off of that. Because I'm still convinced, and I've been convinced of this a long time, that though our clients come to us with these various requests, they're really coming to us with various forms of the same need. They're they're asking you as as a designer to solve their problem. And if you're not clear on what that problem is and you're only solving it from a creative standpoint, everybody's an art director, everybody's a graphic designer, everybody can tell you how to do your job, but you're the only person who might be qualified in, in all of that advice. So I think it's going to be really important for you to start learning from their perspective, seeing from their perspective so that you can do your job better. So change the way you listen, change the way you learn, expand what you're concerned with to do your job better. That's where thinking how they think, think how they think to do what we do. That's what I would prescribe because it's going to keep changing. So there's not one thing. There's you paying attention so that you can figure out what the things are, Mm. that what the direction is. You have to pay attention. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to survive. That's what I was doing when I decided to go back to school, when I didn't have to. This was back when, you know, strategy was not a part of design. There were people who were just strategists and they were just designers. But I saw where this was going and I knew that I didn't want to become a creative director through brushing up on more execution elements. I didn't want to just become better at coding and then therefore be a better designer. I wanted to be better at understanding why we were in the room in the first place. So I wanted to learn the strategic part. That was what my approach was. And that now, what, four, you know, seven years later, even more than that, seven, eight years later, you know, things are, are exactly where I saw that they were going. So pay attention. That's hmm. the only way you're going to be able to survive. That's a great way to kind of end this segment because I think what you just said right now ties back into the story that you shared about your grandfather yeah. listening to a right-wing conservative radio show just to learn yes. what the opposition or the other party was saying. Yes, What he was going to do with that information was up to him, but at least he was aware of what was going on. So you as a designer, you should be listening to what the business people, the people who write the checks, who make the decisions yes. who to work with. Yes, if you, if you learn what they're talking about, what keeps them up at night, as you've said, Boy, that would make you a lot more powerful. So much, so much more powerful and so much more of a partner. Instead of them, you know, you're waiting outside the conference room for them to tell you what to do. And then they're like, yeah, I want to see three options by three o'clock. And yeah, give me some donuts. Instead (laughs) of being someone, you know, who they're bossing around, you can change the dynamic of what the relationship is. 
Because then you can become a strategic partner who not only understands business, you remember, you're the link. You're the spoonful of sugar. They cannot go public with any of these plans without you as a creative, as a designer, as an art director. It's not possible for them to, to go forward without you. They can't launch that product without you. So you wield a certain power that if you just learned how, like what we were doing, why are they, why do they have you in the room? We're there to increase uh, traffic to this site. We want to reposition this product in the minds of consumers. We have a product that we're going head to head with. You need to understand that. That's why they're asking you to design this brochure. That's why you're doing that website. That's why you're doing the app. That's why you need to understand Snapchat. What happens if the younger people are the target that we're trying to go after and you know where they speak? You have the upper hand in the room because you understand Snapchat. That's your role. So I hope that something about this conversation encourages you to change the way you learn so that the longevity there is something that will pay dividends because you are serious about the work and you're serious about understanding the perspectives that are outside your own. Douglas, I want to thank you for taking time out of your vacation from Cabo to talk to me. It was a real pleasure. And in case you guys are just tuning in, I was just talking to Douglas Davis. He's the writer of Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. How do people find out more about you, Douglas? They can go to thinkhowtheythink.com. Um, I've just recently put out a promotion for the book named Slay. It's about six, it's a visual essay about successfully managing fear. You can find that on my website, thinkhowtheythink.com. You can email me at me at douglasdavis.com, but also emailing me, Twitter. Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? I'm at, I'm at Douglas Q Davis. The Q uh, throws I, me off. I it's love, like... I love, you have to, you know, there's so many Douglas You got to yeah, put the Q in there. Yeah. But lastly, big shout out to the future community. I want to thank you. I want to thank Chris, um, everybody who has been uh, buying the book. You guys have been really wonderful, very supportive. Uh, I appreciate the Amazon reviews. I, I'm very grateful for the ways that you share uh, with me that the work that you're doing is impacted by what you read in the book. Thank you so much. And thank you for the time, Chris. Thank you. This is Douglas Davis, and you are listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.